Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. When Jesus had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesons, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a good way off from there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged Jesus, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And Jesus said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them, speaking of the swine, fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Now, in order to understand this particular story, and the purpose behind it, in order to understand what's really taking place, we have to, at least for a few minutes, get really weird. I hope that's okay. Because we're dealing with demon possession. And we're dealing with two men that are demon-possessed. And the question always arises and has to be addressed, what in the world is this? What is happening? What are these demons? Why do they want to be embodied? Why do they need a body? Why, why after being cast out, do they feel inclined to be cast into swine? And, and what does all that mean And the fact that the swine didn't run into the sea? Again, we've got to get a little weird to just kind of address the overarching cloud over the story about demon possession. Um, I believe absolutely that demon possession is a real thing. I believe it happens. I believe it happens uh, frequently within the scriptures, not as frequently today. The great question to understand demon possession is to answer the question, what is a demon? And there is a little bit of debate regarding what a demon is or isn't, uh, but I'm going to share with you what, what my thoughts are concerning this uh, from my examine of scripture. We, we are told very clearly that God created humanity, but that humanity isn't the only intelligent being that God created. We aren't given the, the specific timeline of when God created the angelic hosts, but we know that there are such a thing as angels. We know famously that Lucifer was an angel created by God. We also are given the names of Michael, the archangel. We're given the name of, of Gabriel, who plays a significant role in the life of Daniel. Also in the the announcement of Jesus, speaking to not only Mary, but also speaking to Joseph. So we know God created angels, and we know of the angelic host that there was a bit of rebellion. Again, we aren't exactly clear on the timing of this rebellion. There are various thoughts as to when that occurred. We'll save that for another sermon. But Lucifer, his heart welled with pride, wanted the worship of God, and he rebelled. And we're told again in the book of Revelation that he took with him a third of the angelic hosts. We would classify 
these particular angels that had rebelled against God um, as fallen angels. But you should understand that there is nothing particular about a fallen angel that makes them any different than other angels. They are angelic beings. And we know, therefore, certain things about angelic beings that are applicable, yes, to those still following God, but to those that are in rebellion. One of which is that they come with a bodily form. There are all kinds of descriptions of cherubim and seraphim within the scriptures, uh, descriptions of angelic beings and what they look like. There's variations in their physical appearance. We're also given evidence, though, that, that within their angelic manifestation in the heavenlies, that angels are able to take on bodily form as well. Uh, in fact, we're told in the book of Hebrews that to be careful when entertaining strangers. Why? Because without knowing it, you could very well be entertaining an angel and, and not be aware. I've told this story before, about, but I'll repeat. I was in high school. I was on my way to church. I was coming down 124. I had a boat on wheels at the time, a 79 Malibu Classic, baby blue. It was a tank. I'm pretty sure my parents put me in the tank because if I was in a car accident, you would worry about what I hit, not worried about the car. I knew I was running on fumes. And I saw the gas station up ahead. And as I'm going down 124, I'm like, Lord, you got to get me to this gas station. I get into the turn lane. Ran out of gas. I ran out of gas in the turn lane of a gas station. I was like, of all of the luck. Now, understand, there's no way, human, physically, that I was going to be able to roll that boat from the turn lane to the gas station. Yes, it was about 100 yards, but it was impossible. So I'm sitting there thinking, I have got a problem. And out of nowhere, out of nowhere, this big burly guy, I could see him, I closed my eyes, I could picture him. Big old beard, bikerish, kind of leather jacket, whole shebang. He comes out of nowhere. And he's like, looks like you're out of gas. And I was like, yes, sir, I, I am. He goes, well, well, let's push it into the gas station. So I get out of the car thinking, you know, you know I'm going to push my, I'm going to do my part, pull the steering wheel. He'll do his part. And he's like, no, just get in and steer. I'll push. I'm like the superhuman strength of this man. I don't think he knows what he's getting into, but sure enough, boom, we start rolling. I'm doing my best to turn the wheel. I get into the parking spot. I jump out because I was going to give him a few bucks, at least say thank you, shake his hand, gone. I look around the corner, no sight of him. Look around, there's no other cars. And I believe in that moment that he, had, he was an angel, that God had sent an angel to push my Malibu Classic from the turn lane of a gas station into one of the spots so I could fill up. Now, he might not have been, but we are told in Scripture, you could be entertaining angels and you not even know it. And so, think about it. Occasions in your own life where just someone kind of crosses your path in a moment where you had some need, and could it have been? Well, the Scripture wouldn't give us a warning if it wasn't possible and even probable. I think that there'll come a day where we're in heaven and we come across one of these angels and we're like, oh my goodness, I remember you. 
angels are able to take on a bodily form. They're not beholden or needing of an of a embodiment. They have one. They have one in the heavenlies. They can manifest one on earth. Another great example of this is, is the story of, of Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're told that Abraham entertains guests. They were men, travelers, one of which was likely Jesus, Christophany. The other two were angels. And it was the two angels that then go into Sodom and Gomorrah. And, well, that story plays out. But again, taking on bodily form, breaking bread with Abraham, eating like you would eat, angels. So we have this classification. You have human beings, intelligent creatures. You also have a- angels, those that are still operating within their their God-given calling, and then those that are in rebellion. But same classification of being. On a side note, again, I told you we would get weird. You know, we have a lot of sightings these days of some type of intelligent beings, alien creatures. We are not alone. Well, I agree. We are not alone. Could some of the things that that we see, that we encounter, could it be tied into this biblical explanation of, yes, another very intelligent being that God has created? Very possibly. That being said, demons seem to be something else. And again, to be fair, there are scholars that are split on the issue. Some say that there's not much of a difference between a fallen angel and a demon. But I disagree from just the evidence of Scripture. Because unlike a fallen angel, demons seem to crave some type of inhabitation. Specifically, demons seem to crave human inhabitation. We see all throughout the Scriptures, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the ministry of Jesus, demon possession and Jesus casting demons out of individuals. We have no instance whatsoever of an angelic being craving embodiment, they can manifest their own, yet alone embodying a human being. But we do see this within demons. So the question arises, what is a demon? If it's not a fallen angel, is it something else entirely? And I would say yes and no. Now, this is again where things get a little strange and could demand its own study. I'll give you the flyby. In the book of Genesis chapter 6, we are given the account of something very strange happening before the flood. We're told that the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they produced what was called giants, or in the original language, Nephilim, Nephilim. Now, these particular giants, according to the way that most scholars uh, understand the passage, were a combination of human women breeding with fallen angels, producing this unique classification of half-human, half-demons. I told you, I briefed you, this would be weird. And again, you can disagree with me, and that's fine. You need wrong opinions for there to be right ones. I, I get it. The question begs, is during the flood, what happened to the Nephilim? What happened to this weird, perverse classification of half-human, half-angelic beings? Human bodies, but an angelic spirit. 
Well, I will say this, and the Bible doesn't answer the question specifically, but you can't kill an angel. And it begs that you can't kill an angelic spirit. Now, you can kill a human body. You can drown one, which happened during the flood. But then what happens to the spirit? Because, again, they're not saved. They're not particularly human. But they're also not particularly angelic. I think that when we read about demons, that we are given the answer. That demons are the disembodied spirit of the Nephilim that died during the flood. Which would explain why they're constantly craving human embodiment. Physical embodiment. Either way, demons possessing human beings manifests with torment. Now, within our story, we're introduced to two demon-possessed men. Now, there's no debating what was happening. They were possessed by demons. We're not given the explanation as to how they were possessed other than they were at some point in their story. Whether it was dabbling within the occult, whether it was the, the, the taking of some type of hallucinogen, whether it was the worship of a pagan god. At some juncture in the lives of these two individuals, they opened themselves up, they became susceptible to demon possession. Let me, let me clarify one thing before we move forward. The Bible tells us, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. And I should clarify, at least make it clear, that regarding a Christian, it is impossible, again, according to our understanding of Scripture, for a Christian, a Holy Spirit-filled believer, to be possessed by a demon. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be oppressed, that you can't be attacked. You've probably experienced that in your own life. I think uh, oppression is a real thing. But in regards to possession, the Bible says, What fellowship is Christ with Belial? What fellowship is light with darkness? If you, my friend, are filled, possessed with the Holy Spirit of the living God, there is no room in you for any other spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit, possessed with the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now, these two gents find themselves possessed. We're given a bit of description within Matthew's gospel. We're told that they were coming out of the tombs exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. And some of the other accounts, and again, you can find this particular account repeated in the gospel of Mark as well as Luke. <clears throat> we're told that, that these men were naked and in addition to being naked and living in tombs, they, cutted, they were cutters. They mutilated themselves. Again, the, the, the struggle of the human capacity to deal with this particular possession drove them insane. It drove them mad. Self-harm manifested. These two guys terrorized the area. Now, in the region of Gadara, within the greater area of the Galilee, it was quite a, a large area, and, and most of the Gadarenes lived inland. The area of Gadara did 
reached to the Sea of Galilee. It would seem from our text that these two men, uh, not living within the, the, the populated regions, um, were taking up occupancy in a graveyard close to the sea. They were living amongst the tombs. Now, in Jewish culture, living amongst the dead was taboo. The dead was considered to be unclean. Any contact with the dead would make one ceremonially unclean. These two men, with their possession, their particular torment, don't mind. We're told they're fierce. In one of, of, of the other accounts, we're told that on occasion, these men would be placed into shackles, and yet they would break free of the shackles, exhibiting superhuman strength. They were so terrifying that everyone avoided the area. In fact, Matthew tells us that they were so fierce, everyone was so afraid that no one even passed that way. This particular trail making its way down to the sea, everyone avoided. Everyone that is, but Jesus. Now again, there's a little context that has to be uh, pointed out. Because earlier in the chapter, again, even before Jesus instructed the disciples to get into a boat and sail to the other side, we're told that Jesus had purposed, hey, guys, we're going we're gonna to go to the other side. Like Jesus from the beginning had an intention. He had a plan. He had a destination. He had a goal. Finished up his ministry, the work that he was performing there in Capernaum. They get into the boat. Yes, they're met by a storm. The storm was part of Jesus' plan. The storm was not an accident. The storm was part of Jesus' preparation of taking little faith and making it great. Not faith in themselves, but faith in the power of Jesus. And we see these men. The sea, the stormy sea, instantly turning to calm. And the boat makes its way where? specifically to an area that everyone would avoid because of these two men, their fierceness, their possession. Like right from the beginning, you got to understand about the story is that Jesus, he intentionally sails from Capernaum. He intentionally leaves a season of ministry described by great multitudes, huge crowds, massive ministry potential. He specifically tells his boys to get into a boat to sail to the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to leave behind all that was happening. Why? Because he had an appointment with the two most unlikely of characters. These two <clears throat> demon-possessed men. Jesus arrives. And we're told that these men, they make up the welcoming committee. And they come out, and they cried out. Now, now, let me add, many of the disciples were from the area, grew up in the area. Many of them fished, made a living fishing the Sea of Galilee. And I can figure, I'd, I'd stand to reason, that they were familiar with the area that the area had a bit of a reputation. It was the area <clears throat> of the Sea of Galilee that everyone avoided. Yes, you might have 
approached the shore to cast a net here or there, but you dare not step foot on the banks because of these two men. Their reputation preceded them. In fact, can you imagine being in a boat under a starry sky, sailing close to the shore of Gadara, hearing in the distance the screeching and the yelling, the blood-curdling noise emanating out of the darkness through the bushes and the foliage. These men, butt-naked, fierce, exhibiting superhuman strength, as soon as these men realized where they were headed, can you imagine the trepidation? Jesus, are, are you sure the GPS is taking us to the shore of Gadara? We just survived the storm. Is this really where we're going to dock? Aren't you aware? And their fears are realized the moment they arrive because these two men rush out. Now, I find it funny just the way that the the text flows, that in response to Jesus calming the storm, all the way back in verse 27, we're told that the men marveled at what had happened, and you would have as well. And then they asked themselves, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? They're like, who is this guy? And then they get to the shore, and these two demon-possessed men answer their question. Oh, you guys are curious. Who can this be? Well, we'll tell you who this is. For they come out and the demons cried out of the men, what have we to do with Jesus? Why are you here, Jesus? And oh, by the way, if you're wondering who he is, you son of God. See, the demons know who Jesus is. The demons are very aware who they are encountering. Yes, Jesus was a man, but he was the Son of God. Now, I should address this phrase, Son of God, because it is the first time that we find it used in the gospel. Son of God. It doesn't mean that Jesus is the Son of God, as though God and Mary had some, like, cosmic celestial relationship, and that Jesus was the offspring of this weirdness. Now, the phrase son of God, within the Hebrew language, it indicates to be of the same nature as my, my sons. You could say, you know, Quincy, son of Zach. It would be the same thing as, as, as this phraseology. What you would be saying is that, is that Quincy exhibits a lot of the nature and the characteristics of Zach, which would absolutely be true. Bad qualities come from me, his good qualities come from Jessica. And yet when we're talking about this phrase, Jesus, the Son of God, to say the Son of God is to say literally Jesus of the same nature as God. That, that's how the phraseology breaks down, which is to affirm what? The deity, the Godship of Jesus. Jesus, you are God. So these two demon-possessed men, they run out. They say, Jesus, what have you to do with us? You're God. And again, they would know. They would be aware. Answering the question of the disciples, who can this be? Well, you're the son of God. And then they say, you've come here to torment us before the time. Now, Jesus had not come to torment the demons. 
Jesus had come to liberate the men, to set those that were captive free. Now, the time. Again, there's some debate in regards to what the time is, whether the time was then or whether the time would come later. But either way, their fear, these demons, are that Jesus would cast them out of the men and not permit them to have any type of physical embodiment. And so they make this unique request. Can you ca- you're going to cast us out. We got that. But can you at least concede that we can go into this herd of swine? Which again is very interesting. They, they understand why Jesus is there. They understand the implications. And they realize the power of Jesus. That if Jesus says go, they have to go. Again, the authority of Jesus. There's no debating it, no denying it. And so Jesus concedes, yes, go into the swine. Now we're told, interestingly by Matthew, that this herd of swine was a good way off from them. Now, can you imagine, for a moment, being one of the swine herdsmen that day, right? Like, try to get into the story here. Now, more than likely, these men, these herdsmen of swine, are one of two groups of people. They could be Gentiles, which would make, which would make sense. This area was heavily populated by the Gentiles. There was Jews occupying the area, but Gentiles as well. And, and with regards to swine, they were determined, according to Leviticus, to be unclean animals. The Jews were to have nothing to do with pigs. So it could make sense that the herdsmen here are Gentiles. So they're unbelieving pagan Gentiles. Or they're full-blown rebellious Jews who have kind of skirted their religion, the religion, the God of their fathers. They're in total rebellion themselves. And they're occupying a particular behavior. They're doing something completely forbidden. Could be either group of people. But imagine you're one of these men. And you've been out there with this herd of swine, and there was this massive storm that churned up, came out of nowhere. You're there with the pigs, and, and, you, and you see it. It came off, came off the mountaintops. It swooped down into the region. Man, you're looking at the lightning crash. You're looking at the sea. It's dark. You're like, man, that is a storm. And you've done what you could to get the swine kind of back into some protected area. You're a good herdsman. That's what a good herdsman does. And then imagine, again, you haven't read the chapter, nor were you in the boat, but this storm that you've been watching, I mean, it's been beaten down on you too, instantly ceases. It's not like the clouds parted, you know, the storm rolled out. It it was like torrential downpour, hurricane cat five kind of a style, a scene One moment, and then the next moment, boom! The moon, a gentle breeze, the stars out, and the sea is calm. And you're like, that's weird. And then, from the darkness, comes a boat sailing through. And it docks in a forbidden area. And you're kind of watching this from a perch, This is strange. Do they not know? Clearly, you've got to know. There's these two men. It's an area we don't go. They're fierce. 
And what happens? Again, you're not close enough to hear or to see, but all of a sudden, your swine start looking at each other. And they start acting really peculiar. And then collectively, this group of swine starts barking at each other, making a bunch of noise, and they all proceed to run down the hillside, off a cliff, into the Sea of Galilee. Now that's amazing. You inquire, what just happened? And the answer you get is, well, the demons that were in these two men. And again, in another account, we're told that after being liberated from this possession, they were then clothed. They were in their right mind. They were sitting with Jesus. Amazing. And you put it together that the demons that were in these men somehow ended up in the pigs, and the pigs were not cool with it. So they go kamikaze style. Like, can't handle possession. Drowning in the water, much better option. Now, I was asked earlier, well, what happened to the demons then? I have no idea. Text doesn't tell us, and uh, I have no clue. I don't know where they ended up after that. But the swine drown, and these men go back to the town. And it's interesting, again, look at the text. We're told, verse 33 that those who kept the swine went into the city, told everything. So they told about the storm, about the calm, about the boat sailing in, about the the two men being liberated, everything, including what happened to the men, their pigs, and the whole city came out to meet Jesus, which you would think would be an awesome thing, wouldn't it? I mean, if the story ended there, you'd be like, right on. Like, that makes so much sense. Now I know why Jesus intentionally wanted to go to this area. He was craving barbecue. No. He liberated these men. And because these men ended up liberated, the town comes out, and there's this great celebration, and they're like, Jesus, the king, he's here. This is glorious. Welcome. But no. No. <laughs> They came out to meet Jesus. Why? For they begged him to depart from their region. How tragic. How tragic. Now, why would they ask Jesus to depart from the region? Well, the conventional wisdom is the economic impact that losing such a herd of swine probably had, you know, on the pocketbook of the masters. It could also be that if this was a a Jewish establishment, an outpost, that they were aware that having pigs was against the law, that God wasn't cool with it, that this was therefore some judgment, and Jesus walking up, the Son of God, power to free those possessed, cleansing the area of the swine, that he might also have an agenda with maybe their swine. And I say that in an analogy. The other things that, were might, that might have been happening in the area that were unkosher. 
that God might have taken an umbrage with. And thus they were, they were, you need to leave. We don't want you messing with our businesses either. Regardless of the explanation, there is one thing that really jumps out at me when reading this story. And that is the reaction of the demons to the arrival of Jesus and how similar it is to the reaction of the people. Again, look back. We're told, verse 29, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? What have we to do with you? In the original language, it can invert as well. What have we to do with you, or what have you to do with us? Why are you here? We don't want you to be here. And then what's the reaction of the people? We don't want you to be here. You know, it's interesting that you can tell when someone is succumbing to the influence of the enemy, when their reaction to Jesus is go away. I don't want you involved. I know who you are, and I know you have power, and I know you have authority, and I know that there's influence, but I don't want anything to do with you. Like, what have you to do with me? Why are you here? I don't want you to be here. I want you to go away. How tragic that is when we see so many. So many miss out on the liberating, radical nature of Jesus because they don't want the influence of God in their life. I'd rather do my thing, Jesus. I'd rather continue on as, as it's been. I'm good. I'm fine. You go deal with other people. Leave me alone. I know Christians that have fallen into the same trap of thinking. Again, Jesus, I know you're the son of God. I know what you do. But you know what? I've got this thing in my life that I, I don't want you to touch that I don't want to surrender, that I don't want to let go of. It's, it's, it's my swine. What have you to do with me? Go away. In fact, you can, you can have all the other aspects of my life, but this thing, stay away from it. Stay away. In his, <clears throat> in his novels, The Lord of the Rings Tolkien described this spiritual thing as my precious. My precious. The ring was just a, it was just an item. But it's what that it meant to Gollum. My precious. And what did it do? The one thing destroyed him. My precious. Leave that alone. And you know what's, what's fascinating about the story? Verse 1 of chapter 9. 
So Jesus got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. What did Jesus do? No, I'm kicking that door down. He acquiesced. Okay. You know who I am. You know what I've come to do. And this is that area. And you're saying, leave it alone. Stay away. Go away. Well, there's so much I want to do. In fact, I came all the way over here. But you know what? I'm a gentleman. And if that's your wish, I'll leave it alone. And I'll go away. That's one of the things about Jesus, about the heart of our King, is that he honors free will. Jesus has a will of his own, don't get me wrong. Jesus wills that all would come into a saving knowledge, that all would be saved, that all would experience his grace. But if you're wanting Jesus to go away, he'll go away. That doesn't mean he won't come back. He does. He comes back to the area later on. But in the moment, he leaves. And in our lives, he'll do the same. Have you ever experienced that? Jesus, go away. And he does. And that precious, that part of your life, it continues to metastasize. And it continues to spread. And it continues to grow. And it continues to grip and possess. And in the end, destroy. And Jesus will come back in, in various times and says, are you ready? No, leave me alone. Okay? I'll leave you alone. In fact, I'm going to be bold enough to say that right now that there is probably some people in this room where Jesus is speaking into your heart. You know what that thing is. And he's like, let me touch it. Let me minister to it. Let me do something about it. Let me heal. Let me liberate. Let me free you. Let me work. Let me do my thing in your life. And you're like, no. Or you're wrestling with the decision. And you need to understand. You need to understand that you are then left with a decision. Do I let Jesus do his thing? Or do I say, leave me alone? because he will leave you alone. He'll honor your request. He'll honor that wish. And then what happens? As with sin, it becomes so much easier to say, leave me alone. I'll give you just a practical example of this in real life. You ever done something? You knew it was wrong. And I'll leave it there. I'll let you kind of fill in the blanks in your own analogy. But you knew it was wrong. You did something. You were convicted of it by the Holy Spirit. But you did it. And you felt bad about it. You're like, I shouldn't have done that. And then at some point down the road, you're presented with that same opportunity again. And you're like, yeah, I did that. I knew it was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. I did it that one time. I felt bad about it. I knew I shouldn't have done it. I really shouldn't do it again. But now I'm sitting here and I'm like, eh, but I really kind of want to do it again. 
So you do it again. And you feel bad about it. Guilty. Shouldn't have done that. And then what happens? You're given another opportunity. Same thing. You know, the more and more and more you keep telling Jesus, leave me alone, let it go. You know, at some point, you start to write your own morality. At some point, you're presented the opportunity to do the same thing again that you knew was wrong, but this is what happens. You're like, is it really wrong? No, it's not wrong. This is, this is how men end up cheating on their wives and justify it. People that are followers of Jesus. Because each step along the way, Jesus was like, let me in. Let me work. Let me act. And they kept saying, leave me alone. And Jesus honors it. These possessed men They're set free. You can read in some of the other accounts what happens to them. I'll leave that to Mark and Luke. The moral of this story isn't what happens to the demon-possessed men. It's what doesn't happen in the town of Gadara. Jesus leaves Capernaum, and he goes to their region to do an amazing work. And then he gets back in the boat and he goes home. Only ministering to two demon-possessed men, but forgoing so much more. If you recall, early in the chapter, back in Capernaum, Jesus stayed up all night healing everyone that they would bring out that were sick or possessed all night and he was willing to do the same thing in Gadara but didn't because they asked him to leave to leave them alone I think that leaves each of us with some decisions to make on our, in our own lives I had every intention on covering the next story that didn't happen I got to one verse in chapter 9. It was the goal to get to chapter 9. I accomplished that. But I think there's so much here, so much applicable, so much we can think about that we should just leave it where it is. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.